Chapter Seven of Mosby's Memoirs. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. Mosby's Memoirs by Colonel John Singleton Mosby. Chapter Seven about Fairfax Courthouse. Until the spring of 1862 we did picket duty on the Potomac, a more agreeable duty than the routine of a camp. There were some skirmishes, and many false alarms. A hog-rooting or an old hare on its nocturnal rounds would often draw the fire of a vedette. My company went three times a week on picket, and remained twenty-four hours, when we were relieved by another company. The following letters from Colonel Mosby to his wife and his sister give the most interesting events of the time between the Battle of Manassas and the campaign of 1862. Fairfax Courthouse, July 29, 1861. Dearest Pauline, We have made no further advance, and I know no more of contemplated movements than you do. A few nights ago we went down near Alexandria to stand as a picket, advance guard. It was after dark, when riding along the road a volley was suddenly poured into us from a thick clump of pines. The balls whistled round us, and Captain Jones's horse fell, shot through the head. We were perfectly helpless, as it was dark and they were concealed in the bushes. The best of it was that the Yankees shot three of their own men, thought they were ours. Beauregard has no idea of attacking Alexandria. When he attacks Washington he will go about Alexandria to attack Washington. No other news. For one week before the battle we had an awful time. Had about two meals during the whole time. Marched two days and one night, on one meal, in the rain, in order to arrive in time for the fight. We captured a great quantity of baggage left here by the Yankees, with orders for it to be forwarded to Richmond. Fairfax Courthouse, August 18, 1861. My dearest Pauline, I was in a little brush with them one day last week. A party of ten of us came upon about a hundred and fifty. We fired on them and of course retreated before such superior numbers. We jumped into the bushes to reload and give it to them again when they came up. But instead of pursuing us they put back to their own camp. When I was last on picket I was within about four miles of Georgetown, and could distinctly hear the enemy's morning drumbeat. Some of the Yankees came to my post under a flag of truce, stayed all night, ate supper with me, and we treated each other with as much courtesy as did Richard and Saladin when they met by the Diamond of the Desert. Our blister-plaster doctor affords us a good deal of fun. He is one of the most pompous fellows you ever saw. He went with us on picket one night, got scared, ran to us and swore he had ridden through a whole regiment of the enemy's infantry. The whole truth was there was not a Yankee in three miles of him. Fairfax Courthouse, September 2, 1861 My dearest Pauline, I received a fall from my horse one day last week, down at Falls Church, which came near killing me. I have now entirely recovered, and will return to camp this morning. I was out on picket one dark, rainy night. There were only three of us at our post. A large body of cavalry came dashing down towards us, from the direction of the enemy. 
Our orders were to fire on all. I fired my gun, started back toward where our main body was, my horse slipped down, fell on me, and galloped off, leaving me in a senseless condition in the road. Fortunately the body of cavalry turned out to be a company of our own men who had gone out after night to arrest a spy. When they started they promised Captain Jones to go by our post and inform us of the fact, in order to prevent confusion. This they failed to do, and their own culpable neglect came near getting some of them killed. Our troops are gradually encroaching on the Federals, now occupying a position in full view of Washington. A brush is looked for there to-day. I rode out one day about a week ago with our wagon, after hay, came to where our pickets were stationed. They were in full view of the Yankees, a few hundred yards off on the opposite hill. The Yankees were firing at our men with long-range guns, but ours could not return it, as they have only old muskets. I have a splendid Sharps carbine, which will kill at a thousand yards. I dismounted, and turned loose on them. I had to fire at them most of the time in a thick field of corn. Of course, could not tell the effect. But once, when a fellow ran out into the road, in which I stood, to shoot at me, it took several to carry him back. Camp near Fairfax Courthouse, September 17, 1861 Dear Liz, Mosby's sister, Beauregard and Johnston are expected to move their headquarters up to Fairfax to-day. Although Captain Jones is a strict officer, he is very indulgent to me, and never refuses me any favour I ask him. I think he will be made a colonel very soon. Aaron, Mosby's negro servant, considers himself next in command to Captain Jones. Nobody thinks the war will continue longer than a few months. We will clean them out in two more battles. Camp near Fairfax Courthouse, September 14, 1861 My dearest Pauline, Today we go on picket at the Big Falls on the Potomac. One hill we occupy commands a full view of the capital. I went to take a view of it with Lloyd. We could see it distinctly, with all their fortifications and the stars and stripes floating over it. I thought of the last time I had seen it, for you were there with me, and I could not but feel some regrets that it was no longer the capital of my country, but that of a foreign foe. Camp near Fairfax, September, 1861 My dearest Pauline, The enemy had come up with three thousand men, artillery, etc., to Louisville, one of our picket stations. When we got there they were still there. Three men of our company, including myself, were detached to go forward to reconnoitre. Colonel Stewart was with us. While standing near the opening of a wood, a whole regiment of Yankees came up in full view, within a hundred yards of me. Their colonel was mounted on a splendid horse, and was very gaily dressed. I was in the act of shooting him, which I could have done with ease with my carbine, when Colonel Stewart told me not to shoot, fearing they were our men. I never regretted anything so much in my life as the glorious opportunity I missed of winging their colonel. We went back and brought up our artillery, which scattered them at the first shot. I never enjoyed anything so much in my life as standing by the cannon and watching our shells when they burst over them. Camp Cooper November 21, 1861 
My dearest Pauline, on Monday I participated in what is admitted to have been the most dashing feat of the war. Colonel Lee took about eighty men out on a scout. Hearing where a company of about the same number of Yankees were on picket, we went down and attacked. They were concealed in a pine thicket, where one man ought to have been equal to ten outside. We charged right into them, and they poured a raking fire into our ranks. Fount Beatty and myself, in the ardor of pursuit, had gotten separated some distance from our main body, when we came upon two Yankees in the woods. We ordered them to surrender, but they replied by firing on us. One of the Yankees jumped behind a tree and was taking aim at Fount when I leveled my pistol at him, but missed him. He also fired, but missed Fount, though within a few feet of him. I then jumped down from my horse, and as the fellow turned to me, I rested my carbine against a tree and shot him dead. He never knew what struck him. Fount fired at one with his pistol, but missed. A South Carolinian came up and killed the other. The man I killed had a letter in his pocket from his sweetheart, Clara. They were of the Brooklyn Zoavs and fought at Manassas. 1862. My dearest Pauline, get Aaron to give you a full account of his adventure, his memorable retreat from Bunker Hill, his dockering the sick men during the battle. He is a good deal thought of in the company. Footnote. The story of the sick men concerns the Battle of Manassas. They covered themselves with heavy blankets and shivered when the shells were flying. When they were not, they would recover and raise up and ask Aaron, Haven't you got a few more of those corn-cakes? End of footnote. At the end of 1861 occurred an event which greatly disappointed Southern hopes. Mason and Slidell had been sent as ambassadors to England and France. They escaped through the blockading fleet at Charleston and arrived at Nassau, where they took passage on the English steamer Trent. The vessel was stopped on the high seas by Captain Wilkes of the San Jacinto, and the ambassadors were taken off and confined in Fort Warren, Boston. This action was hailed with as much joy in the South as in the North. The Confederates thought their ambassadors would be held as prisoners, and conceived it to be impossible that they would be surrendered on the demand of England, after the Secretary of the Navy had approved the conduct of Wilkes, and Congress had given him a vote of thanks. Fortunately for the Union cause, neither Mr. Lincoln nor Mr. Seward had committed himself to an approval of it, but both had kept a judicious silence until they could hear from England. In the South we all felt sure that England would never submit to such an indignity and breach of neutrality. War between England and the United States was considered inevitable, and we could almost hear the roar of English guns dispersing the fleets which were blockading our coasts. With England as an ally of the South, our success was certain, but the administration wisely yielded to England's demand and surrendered the captives. Mr. Seward, in a letter to Lord Lyons, ingeniously maintained that he was consistent in so doing, and that in demanding their release England had at last claimed for neutrals the rights for which the United States had always contended. Mason and Slidell were transferred to an English gunboat lying off Cape Cod, and thus withered our hopes of having England as an ally. There was no longer a casus belli. The Richmond Examiner, January 1, 1862, said of this affair, The year which has just begun opens with evil tidings, 
we fear there is no doubt of the fact that the northern union has consented to the surrender of mason and slidell and with that event all hopes of an immediate alliance between the southern confederacy and great britain must cease it happened that i brought to the camps in fairfax the first news of the capture of mason and slidell fitzhugh lee took a part of my regiment on a scout and we came upon the brooklyn fourteenth that was doing picket duty they wore red breeches so we called them the red-legged yankees as soon as we got in sight of them we charged a portion of them were in a dense thicket which we couldn't penetrate on horseback and so a few of us dismounted and charged on foot with carbines to the point where the reserve had a fire we took a number of prisoners and i picked up a newspaper it was about sundown the paper was a copy of the washington star of that evening and had an account of the capture of mason and slidell when we brought the prisoners to fitz lee i said colonel here's a copy of today's paper fitz lee replied the ruling passion strong in death referring to my reputation of always being the first man in the company to get hold of a newspaper colonel jones sent the paper to general johnson's headquarters at centerville a popular notion has prevailed that a great benefit would have resulted to the south if england and france had received our ministers and established diplomatic relations with the southern confederacy i never thought so unless they had gone further and intervened in our behalf as france did with the colonies and sent their fleets to break the blockade in that event they would have become parties to the war when they proclaimed their neutrality and accorded us belligerent rights and the hospitality of their ports to confederate cruisers they just as much recognized the independence of the south as if they had officially received its ministers the human mind cannot conceive of belligerent rights except as attached to a supreme independent power there was a great deal of complaint against england for her haste in proclaiming neutrality and thus recognizing the belligerent character of the contest but the congress called by mr lincoln in july eighteen sixty one before bull run had been fought as webster said about bunker hill elevated an insurrection into a public war it passed an act forbidding commercial intercourse between persons living north and south of the potomac and declaring the forfeiture of goods caught in transit and also the seizure of vessels on the high seas as enemy property if the owners lived in the south it also declared that such seizures and intercourse should be governed not by the municipal law of the country but by the law of nations it thus recognized our sectional conflict as a public territorial war and not like the wars of the roses a contest of factions the law of nations regulates the relations of alien enemies in war and can have no application to citizens of the same country this act of congress was a declaration of a war inter gentes as much so as that between france and prussia the amy warwick owned in richmond sailed from rio without notice of the blockade she was seized on the voyage and condemned as a prize of war it was contended that there was no proof that her owner was in rebellion but the supreme court held that international law took no notice of the personal sentiments of individuals but that their domicile determined their legal status. 
In the opening of the year 1862 there was a great deal of depression in the Southern Confederacy. A considerable amount of this was due to the failure of our hopes of having England as an immediate ally, but most of it was on account of the expiration, in the coming spring, of the terms of enlistment of most of the regiments and the reluctance of the men to re-enlist before going to their homes. General Joe Johnston issued an address urging the twelve months' volunteers to re-enlist, but it had little or no effect. He said, The commanding general calls upon the twelve months' men to stand by their brave comrades who have volunteered for the war, to re-volunteer at once, and thus show the world that the patriots who engaged in this struggle do not swerve from the bloodiest path they may be called to tread. The fear that the army would disappear like a morning mist is shown in the farewell address of General Beauregard, dated January 30, 1862, when he was about to leave to take command in the West. He said, Above all, I am anxious that my brave countrymen, here in arms fronting the haughtily arrayed master of northern mercenaries, should thoroughly appreciate the exigency, and hence comprehend that this is no time for the Army of the Potomac, the men of Manassas, to stack their arms and quit, even for a brief period, the standards they have made glorious by their manhood. The fact that Beauregard italicized the latter part of the sentence was an omen of impending danger. Mr. Davis also sent a message to Congress in which he said, I therefore recommend the passage of a law declaring that all persons residing within the Confederate States, between the ages of eighteen and thirty-five years, and rightfully subject to military duty, shall be held to be in the military service of the Confederate States. The conscription law increased the numbers, but impaired the esprit de corps of the volunteer army that won the victory of Manassas. The flower of southern manhood had been gathered there. But the law saved the Confederacy from the danger of collapse without another battle through the disbandment of its army. After the war, I heard severe criticism of the Conscription Act, which in fact saved the Confederacy for a time. End of chapter.